1: Welcome to a special UCF Rewind edition of the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez here with you. Um, as we go through some of the great games and great moments in UCF football history, uh, you guys probably remember, of course, we did a uh, War on I-4 rewatch um, back on uh, April the 13th. And we have a very special guest uh, on this show. Uh, who We dedicated the entire show to to him, uh, and credit to you, Eric Lopez, for getting uh, for getting him on the show. One of our uh, one of our truly favorite uh, people in the play by play business and in announcing in general, uh, Adam Amin. Eric Lopez, join us. You were the one who spoke to him. Um, yep. What a what a joy to talk to him, isn't it?
0: oh it was a blast it was great to catch up with him and you know as you'll hear in the interview i had with him you know it was right around this time a year a year ago we were hanging out at the amway center for the magic and the raptors playoff game and uh, so we were kind of reminiscing about that a little bit on the air and off the air because you know as you know he is as busy as it comes when it comes to broadcasters he can literally do just about every sport and has he's everywhere part i mean I mean, he's called volleyball. He's called obviously calls major League Baseball. He's called uh, you know, obviously the Women's College World Series and softball, uh, women's final also, four. Women's Final Four, which we get into in this interview later and how uh, one you know, the two thousand and eighteen women's Final Four actually has a very significant moment there for him uh, personally, as we'll get into that later in that in the interview. but he's called obviously that. he's called the NBA uh for for ESPN radio and on ESPN TV of course he had some memorable calls the LeBron James buzzer beater uh against Toronto in 2018 but you know he's also called the NFL on the radio and college football he's been calling college football on ESPN he's joined he's been on ESPN since 2011 and when you think of some of the signature games in his broadcasting career as we'll talk about during the interview it's this game uh this is a game that's very signature game to him and you know, I think you guys even commented on the rewatch, and and, and we discussed this in depth in the interview, uh, the broadcast of this game on, from him uh, and the crew there with, you know, obviously Dusty Dvorak was his analyst and Molly McGrath on the sideline, I thought added to the drama of this football game, which turned out to be arguably the game of the year of the regular season in 2017 in college football. And you could make the case, Jeff, maybe the greatest UCF sporting event uh,
1: greatest game played on campus in any sport in the history of UCF athletics I think it has to be and, and I and you know folks who follow you and I both know like how much we nerd out about you know television and television coverage of sports and play-by-play as an industry um, and as a as a craft right and Adam has very quickly become one of the best um, in and and uh, we all were exposed to that in very fine fashion, you know, that Black Friday evening, um, but, uh, back in twenty seventeen, because it's very rare that you know when we think about the when we think about memories of certain sports moments, you know, the calls are the soundtrack to that. We will always hear those moments as we see them, and with Adam and his crew, like we said they theirs was the soundtrack to just the most phenomenal night I think in in UCF sports history and uh and and that you know we'll be able to take with us you know wherever we go every time we'll hear we, we will hear Adam Amin's voice you know until the, uh, until the day we die, right calling this moment and uh and that gives you and so you hope that it's really good that it's that they did a really good job, and they just did a phenomenal job. They knocked it out of the park. Um, that particular evening, so I will let you. I, uh, without further ado, I will let I will get out of the way and let you do the honors.
0: Well, here it is. He, of course, as I mentioned, has been an ESPN broadcaster since 2011. Of course, a Valpo grad, he's called all the sporting events we've talked about, and he, including that UCF-USF Classic on Black Friday of two th- 2017. Here is now my interview with Adam Amin on the Black and Gold Bannerhead Podcast, UCF Rewind. And joining us now, of course, he's the, of course, the national broadcaster at ESPN. He's done it all. He's called college football, college basketball, college softball, college baseball, NBA, playoffs, Major League Baseball, NFL. You've, you've done it all. He is Adam Amin, ladies and gentlemen, of ESPN, joining us here. Uh, Adam, I uh, hope everything's going well. I know in the unique circumstances, like uh, a weird time, but uh, glad for, uh, that you're joining us.
2: No, I appreciate that man. It's it's good to hear your voice, good to talk to you and uh good to catch up. It's uh no strange time, but we're all navigating the, as best as we can. So this is as I've been saying for the last uh six or seven or you know, however many, you know, forty seven weeks we've been in this thing now, uh it feels like. Uh I've been saying the same thing. Just uh this doing stuff like this provides a little bit of normalcy and that's what's been great about it.
0: Yeah, we miss your voice. We're so used to hearing your voice this time of year doing different things. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just glad to hear your voice again. Like, it's, it's nice. And, uh, a lot of fans are. And, and certainly that's, that, that's kind of been interesting, right? Cause we're, you and I, we're usually busy broadcasting games in different locations. You in particular, mm-hmm. I mean, your schedule, and I, you know, is amazing, like year round. Like, where you going city to city doing different things and it just keeps growing, uh, your responsibility. So this has to been unique times for you as well because, you're used to doing multiple sports in multiple cities. You're, you know, we were talking about right before we went on the air. You'd be in the middle right now of doing NBA playoffs right now. Like a year ago, you and I were at Amway mm-hmm. Center for the Magic uh, playoff game against the Raptors. So it's kind of surreal from that standpoint. Yeah, it's weird to like pass up all these dates, you know, and then and and and, and for so long.
2: I would imagine you're you're kind of the same way too, Eric. Where we kind of. Build our calendars and we have like we associate certain events with like time of year. I'm sure a lot of people do that in other professions too, but in particular, like our calendar is the sports calendar. So I associate this time of year with, you know, going back to March since this whole thing started, I associate this time of year with conference tournaments, then March Madness, Women's Final Four, Major League Baseball. Uh, opening day, closing the regular season of the NBA, jumping into the NBA playoffs, which would have started, like you said, this past weekend. So marking all these dates, it's I, I I'm I get why this is happening. It's all good. It's just when you go through each of these little stretches, you go, "Oh man, that stinks. We didn't get to do that." And then more time passes, and oh man, that stinks. I didn't get to do that either. We would we, we'd be doing this right now. So it's it's so odd when you built your kind of lifestyle around the sport, frankly, the sports calendar. And I've done this out of work and out of necessity, but out of enjoyment, too. It's great. It's weird to just suddenly take a complete left turn and not just change your structure, but just do nothing, not have a structure. That's a very strange thing for a lot of us to do uh, when we're kind of, you know, so conditioned to the structure and the regiment of a yearly calendar.
0: It really is. And you nailed it. Like it is surreal. When you're used to especially when this in it's a busy time of sports here where you're working a lot and you're used to a routine and all of a sudden it's completely different. It is uh you get it, but it's certainly surreal. It's kinda you don't know what really? exactly you're doing on a daily basis, like because exactly, 'cause you're not <laughs> you're used to uh doing something broadcast getting ready for a broadcast. Uh that's what's so fascinating. Uh, have you had a time during this time pane to kind of reflect though? Because a lot of people now have been watching a lot of games here, uh, and, you know, at UCF Black and Gold Banneret. They re- recently did a watch along for the UCF. South Florida Black Friday game which you got to call with Dusty Dvorak and Molly McGrath and even there we were reminded wow what a great broadcast it was and I remember when that game happened live you were getting a lot of compliments on social media and I think a lot of people I think you got a lot of praise at that time not just from fans but even uh, people on Twitter and social media and things like that which as you know is not the most common thing uh, to get (laughs) praised on social media but (laughs) but like have you had a chance to reflect on that like the fact man oh yeah you know maybe you've popped into a game that you've run into that they're airing. Like, I know they've been airing a lot of women's uh, Final Four games. They've called your, your walk-off your national title games recently, which people have also enjoyed as well. Have you kind of reflected on that?
2: Yeah, I think uh, the things that have stuck out, I would say, in the last few weeks, uh, in particular last like three or four weeks, you kind of have gotten to you, – You kind of come to the realization it, it, it really how non-essential you are. Like, in the sense of, like, sports, like, we're still a functioning society, right? Like, I I know there's a lot of people struggling, all that. But for the most part, we're still functioning. Like, the world is moving. You know, while, while a lot of things have come to a halt, the world still moves. And we're still here for, you know, a lot, you know, those of us lucky enough to be here, we're here. I think seeing that and seeing the world move on and sports just stop. You realize we're kind of non-essential in a lot of senses, so I get why 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 we can't enjoy sports together right now. But in the other sense, I've also come to realize how much essentiality we bring to the kind of cultural landscape. The sports in general does this; it drives so much of the conversation for such a large portion of the population, and then for the population that's more casual or maybe not, you know, not really sports fans there's such cultural impact that you can't help but use sports as an entry point into conversation with other people. Like it, it drives so much of how we think, what we think about for so much of us, it's our livelihood. So when you don't have live games to talk about, I've seen how the cultural discussion has faded in a lot of ways, or at least has had to pivot to other things. Like you talked about old games are on things like that. And we can, Maybe relive the Twitter era discussion for a non-Twitter era event, like you know, watching the Last Dance this past week, watching the Bulls documentary, which is going to be our live sports, right? I mean, yep. to me, I don't know how you felt, Dalo, but like to me, it felt like the other night we were watching live sports. Yes. So uh, you, you you saw on Twitter, and then in the ensuing days, how much of the conversation is is driven by sports, and in this sense, not only. It's driving the sports concept, but the cultural aspect of it, too. So there's so much essentiality uh, in it in the same sense of looking at it. We're like, listen, we're not essential, but in a lot of ways, we were essential to the lifeblood of the culture of this country. So that has given me time to go back to the, the initial question about reflectivity. Like, yeah, this has been a good time to think about these things. Like, these are, you know, these are important events in some sense or fashion to people. This is a release. It might be you know, a little bit of uh levity during their day, uh, you know, their entertainment for the day, whatever it is. And we get to bring that to them and, and reflecting on that these last uh, few weeks, you know, this last month uh, has been a, a healthy practice. I think it keeps you going. It keeps you motivated. Uh, the thought of going back out there and, and getting a chance to have some normalcy and have some fun again, like that drives, uh, you know, a little bit of the motivation to keep doing this.
0: No question uh, about that. And, and, you know, and just seeing you, because I've seen you in different sports as they've aired different things uh, over this, it reminded me how versatile you are. And there's, so, and there's so many versatile broadcasters out there, but I don't know how many sure, sure. have that resume that you do. You've called, like I said, the women's Final Four. You've called men's college basketball. You've called college baseball. You've called volleyball, uh, college softball. Did you ever imagine you'd be doing all of these sports? Because it's one thing for, you know, uh, could some broadcaster do that, but it's not as easy to do as many sports as you've been able to do at a high level in the national uh, landscape. I think,
2: uh, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Uh, I, I think um, what, what I've come to realize is versatility for me was more of a buzzword than anything else. Like I, until you become, you know, immersed in the industry you don't really think about, like, when I first started doing this at 18, you know, consistently in college, my freshman year in college doing radio, like, you don't think about versatility as a thing. It's not a concept. You're just learning how to, how to do the job. You're not thinking about, oh, well, I want to be a, or at least I wasn't. I, I shouldn't speak for other broadcasters. because so many other people knew they wanted to do this job long before I thought I knew I wanted to do this job. You know, I didn't realize I wanted to do this until I was about 18 or 19 years old. So for me personally, I didn't know what versatility meant. I, it was, it was not a word in my vernacular when it came to broadcasting, when we had opportunities, it was, you know, at times there were few and far between as freshmen, you know, to, to jump in. So anytime you had a chance to do something, you did it. Hey, I, I, you need somebody to host that broadcast on the radio, do the pre pregame and postgame and intermission show done. I'll do that. You need somebody to cut the highlights. Yeah, I can do that. You need somebody to do an, an update on the national scores. I can do that, too. Uh, oh, the, we're doing soccer tonight? We're doing volleyball tomorrow? Sure, whatever you need, let's do it. And that's how I jumped into the business. And, again, it was we were, we were students. It wasn't even the business yet. But that's how I jumped in. So doing all these sports, it never really occurred to me that you weren't supposed to. I just kind of was under the assumption that you just did whatever you're supposed to do, whatever's in front of you, you did. And this is what we had the chance to do, all these college sports. Men's, women's, revenue, non-revenue, we just did everything. So when you get to your first job and you're doing football, basketball, high school, wrestling in Iowa, I'm doing all, all of those things because I'm expected to do those. When I come to ESPN and I'm doing volleyball and football right out of the gate and then jumping in to do the wrestling championships and then baseball, softball, basketball, like you're, you're, the expectation is just just do it. And then when you become a student of it, you go, oh, Marv Albert used to do like an NFL game, an NBA game, and then the 10 o'clock sportscast at night all in one day in New York. Like, the, he would do that in the 60s and in the 70s. So you, get to, you come to realize, oh, that's what versatility is. And I think that's the mentality that I, I bet you a lot of the broadcasters that we consider versatile – and and you said it, Eric. There's so many great ones that can, we could rattle off a bunch of them right now. I bet a lot of them had the same kind of thought process when they first started. I bet a lot of them just thought, "Oh, we're just supposed to do this. I don't know what versatility is. I just want to do it. Whatever you give me, I'll do."
0: Yeah. No, I I, I agree. Was there? You know because i 've told people this because people have asked me about how I got into calling softball. you know I started at UCF and I said it was kind of a fluke that wasn 't like my goal. it just happened that way. you know, my goal growing up was always to be an MBA or college basketball play by play guy that was always my goal it was my favorite sport. that was the goal. The softball thing just kind of happened it was a fluke. It was a situation where the person that was doing it was removed and they needed somebody to do it and I at the time i 'm like all right i 'll do it because it fits my schedule because I'm, I was covering covering NBA games at the time, uh, shooting video for a, a basketball website. And I ended up getting hooked on it to the point now where I've been doing games now for 13 years and have expanded my role, obviously, in covering softball. Did you, ha- did you have a sport like that where you, had, you did it just because, hey, I got to do it, and you ended up liking it more than you ever thought to the point where you've enjoyed it now, uh, still doing it, uh, because I'm sure you had a favorite sport growing up that you wanted to do, that you're, you know, you're, you, you, there was a goal. Yeah, when I first started,
2: I I was a baseball guy, and I did four years of minor league baseball, and I always thought I would take the track of well, I'll do I'll do the minors, and I'll you know move up in the minors, and I'll get a shot at a double A job, and then I'll get a triple A job, and then maybe I'll get to the majors one day. Like that was just the baseline concept for how you advance in this business, because that's what was in front of me. I was I got a minor league baseball job and thought, okay, this is a good way to do it. You do it every day it's another chance to go out and do it. It was the most opportunities I get. Why wouldn't I do baseball? I just want to do the job. So that's how it started for me. And I thought baseball was going to be the path. And then obviously these opportunities come up. You do have to make money And when you have a chance to go, you know, do a broadcasting job and get paid for it, whatever it is, when it's division two tennis or, um, you know, whether it is the women's college world, I did the division two women's world series, uh, when I was, uh, before I got hired at ESPN in 2011, you know, that was an opportunity that came up. So I just did whatever was in front of me and you get thrust into these, into these different roles. So naturally you, you want, when you invest time into these things, like I did for tennis, you know, it eventually becomes something like, Oh, I'd love to do that. Uh, I didn't really care that much for high school wrestling in Iowa, but I did it because that was the job that was in front of me. So then when you get to ESPN and they say, Hey, would we saw you covered wrestling. We we need somebody to call the wrestling championships. You want to do it? And I'm like, well, shoot, you're handing me as a rookie at ESPN as a network announcer at 20, at that time, 25 years old, when I got the wrestling opportunity. You're handing me a championship. This is my first year. And you're telling me I get to call a championship. That's awesome. The year after that, you know, I, I, I played volleyball and that's why I wanted to do volleyball. I called a lot of volleyball in college. I did it a lot of conference tournaments and, you know, division two stuff, high school stuff. So I, I naturally transitioned to calling volleyball, but you know, out of the, out of my second year, they go, Hey, well, we'll give you the men's championship with Karch Karai. If you want to do that, I was like, yes, I will do that. Of course I will do that. So you fall in love with more of more and more of these sports, just when you get a little bit more of a foothold in them. And that's how I felt about wrestling doing five championships. You know, I, I, Call, I've called plenty of women's basketball in my life, but when they go, hey, here's the final four, you take it, and yeah. you immerse yourself in it. And you, whatever the job is, especially when you get the chance to do a championship-level event, you just want to go head first into it. So naturally, your investment, and I hope your enjoyment because of the investment goes up, and, and mine certainly has when I've invested myself in a lot of these sports.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's exactly the same with me. I felt this way this past fall. I got to do uh, men's college soccer for the first time in a yeah. you know, full-time basis and I got to call an NCAA tournament game on a golden goal by UCF over a Missouri State to get to the Sweet 16 awesome. for the first time and I ended up awesome. enjoying it more than I ever thought you know and that's kind of what's the, the excitement of the industry is because every, no matter what the sport is I think you would agree there's so many great storylines right and that's really part of what makes it exciting about sports is this different stories from within in each sport regardless of how popular the sport is or not there's so many interesting stories within and the the excitement of the drama that that's really what's all it's I think it's one of the reasons why we all get into this right
2: yeah yeah I mean you you hope for you know the 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 big finish in the game that has the biggest stakes that's all you're hoping for that's all any of us is 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 hoping for when we jump into a job or we know we have a game coming up regardless of the stakes going into the game uh, we want the highest stakes for that particular game possible at the end of it. And if it so happens, the stakes were already huge coming in. Then you get the Arike walkoff. You get, you know, moments like that. You get, uh, you know, Rachel Garcia at the World Series, you know, to go to the Champs Series. You get the walkoff like that. You get uh, Tua to Tungabailoa's pass to beat Georgia in overtime for a championship. Uh, LeBron beating the Raptors at the butt. like you get these chances. So there are so few and far between, it feels like to get like the perfect game, the biggest stakes with the best moment. It's so hard to find. Like people go their lifetimes, they go their careers, not getting to see stuff like that, let alone get the call stuff like that. So to be a part of those moments is what you hope for. You live for that stuff. And when you get the, you get to actually experience it. I hope that for everybody. I hope I hope for everybody who wants to do this particular job that they get something like that. Because everybody, you know, everybody works really hard. You invest so much of your time and so much emotion into doing the job. I hope that all of you who do it and put that much investment in it get something like that at some point in your career where you just know this was the moment. The stakes were at their highest. We had the best moment possible at the end of that huge stakes game. And then we get the result, and hopefully you're on top of the call for it.
0: And one of the games, uh, sporting events, one of many great games you've called in different sports, one that jumps out, is the Black Friday, 2017. uh, UCF and South Florida, game with high stakes. Winner was going to win the division, move on to the Mm -hmm. American Conference Championship game against Memphis. UCF was undefeated at the time. You had the Scott Frost storyline. Uh you take me through that. what was that week like as you were preparing for that game? uh it, just take me through that as you guys are getting ready for all these storylines and how you prepare. Give us an idea for like did you realize at that time, wow, this could be a really big game, an exciting game? How do you kind of go into it?
2: Well, what was cool about that particular week uh and you know obviously it's Thanksgiving it's rivalry weekend, so you're gonna get you know high stakes games throughout the throughout the country, but we just felt like. Listen, we got one of the undefeated. It's like there's not that many undefeated teams. I want to say going into that week, there were four. I'm pretty sure it was Miami, UCF, Alabama, and Wisconsin. Yep. I think those were the four unbeaten teams going into Black Friday weekend, going to Thanksgiving 17. And we had the doubleheader. I know the first thing that we do when we get our assignment, I always look what's the game? In, like, what time is our game? Obviously, what network are we on? Okay, three thirty we get our Excel spreadsheet or whatever that our our uh, boss sends out, and we see all right, three thirty Friday, ABC, what's on before us, and what's on after us? That's what I need to know. What, what am I pumping up coming up, and what do I need to know about the game before us? Well, shoot, Miami is playing pick, and Miami is number two in the country. they're unbeaten. I know Bob was shoes in, and Brock Hewart and Allison Williams had the game. I've, I've I've had You know, uh, uh, good relationships with them. So I'll text Bob or Brock or Allison. Hey, is there a nugget you got? I I didn't need to bug them. I was like, Hey, Miami's unbeaten right now. Going into Thanksgiving, they're number two in the country. They've got one of the best resumes. They could get uh, into a showdown with Clemson in the ACC championship game. Like that's what we're thinking. So now I have that as a setting. I know who the unbeaten's are. Well, sure enough. We get a game where Miami gets upset by Pitt, and now there's only three unbeaten teams left. So we have to not only shift our narrative right at the top. And if you watch the broadcast back in the open, I set Dusty up to talk about Miami yep. and Pitt because now the now the Knights are the only unbeaten team in the state of Florida too. So there's so much more hype in the driving moments up to the game that we had to be so flexible. And I think for me, what was fun about that particular week of, prayer, and, I, and I hope this is the specificity that you're looking for, you. This is the yeah. type. I, I, this is kind of, kind of where my head was at. Uh, I talked to Richard Johnson of uh, SB Nation. You know, uh, all those all those folks do such a great job covering college football and Banner Society and all that. Uh, Richard asked me to uh, do, an, do an interview about the game, and I had read some of his research and some of the stuff that he had put out. And I realized the background of the game and the two universities, they were fresh programs. I remember, you know, the stories of South Florida coaches sitting in trailers, getting peppered by batting practice, baseballs, because that's the only offices that they could afford at one point, you know, UCF, the transition into, into FBS and division one, uh, to be a program for only about 20 years or so. Like we we get to build up a little bit of these histories at the same time, because there's so such high stakes to the game. So, so that week of prep leading up and the hype that surrounded it was about as high as anything we'd had all year. And probably it would be as high as, any, as going back to like late September when we had a top 20 Friday night matchup with USC getting upset by Washington State. Like we had a crazy year that year. And this this game, this Warren I four had about as high stakes as any game we'd seen. And so like, sorry for the long answer, Elo, but I think that's what you're. Looking I, for.
0: No, that's fantastic. Please, that's uh, that's the that's phenomenal stuff because I think it's great to get that perspective going in because it's such a significant game uh, at that time. I was trying to remember was that that wasn't your first, was that your first time at the bounce house there or was, have you been there before? No, that you've called games there, right? It,
2: I've, I've been I've been there one time. I'd done uh, UCF Tulane. That's right in 2014 I think that's right around the time that that you know we would gotten to know each other yes. a little bit yes in those couple of years is when I started to see some bigger college softball games you and I would cross paths a little bit or at least talk a little bit
0: yeah that's right I remember that now because I remember it was a noon game and you told me uh and I'm like hey how long are you sticking around I'm like not long I'm actually got a flight I gotta go do another game <laughs> <laughs> so I at that time I was yep. I was starting to learn how chaotic your schedule can be at times, which is kinda wild uh on that. Uh but so you so you've had experience bear, but still the, the environment that it was day- nothing oh yeah, nothing. It was nothing twenty fourteen with
2: you know at the bounce house, it was at Spectrum was nothing like the seventeen game. Too late, you know, UCF was in a tough spot in twenty uh in twenty thirteen they had a good year in 2014, so that was really the the last time I had seen them. I had done UCF's bowl game. I think they had lost in the Bitcoin Bowl to NC State yes, that year. Yes, and I don't think I had I had seen UCF since. I had always kind of just thought of them on the periphery. You know, the, the American Conference games I was doing at that time were like Navy, Memphis. You know, Memphis had Justin Fuente around that time, uh, and they were rolling. That was right before he took the Virginia Tech job. You know, Navy was had Keenan Reynolds at the controls. We thought Cincinnati was a, a team, a nine or ten win team, with like Tommy Tuberville as the head coach. Uh, so that was what we were thinking about with the American at that point. And then you have the the that year, that 2015 season, where UCF just looked god awful. You know, winless team. Yeah. Uh, that, that brutal season. So we hadn't really. Been back to UCF, I hadn't really paid attention. I think the only time i thought about UCF in that stretch, other than when I'm writing down conference notes about teams when I do a, a, a conference game, I, maybe that awful Thanksgiving, that maybe it was the War on I-4 from 2015, that Thanksgiving night game that was just yeah. was like a no-win team versus like a two-win team. It was just a terrible game. And I think that's what most people were associating UCF with. USF had bounced back the year after. They had a decent year in 2016, and obviously UCF had improved. But USF was like in the mix for like a division title midway through the American year that year. It wasn't until 17 where UCF was back on the map at all, and it took a while to get there. And it took you know the types of performances we saw that season to, to get back to respectability, and, and it happened very quickly. So the atmosphere matched the hype over the course of that week.
0: What was it like? Uh talking to Scott Frost as you're preparing for the game because it was such a unique time and you guys even addressed it on the yeah. broadcast there were so many rumors and you guys didn't even have to deal with what what transpired the week later where it turns out mm-hmm. he, you know we found out he's going to Nebraska and Todd McShay was kind of put in the awkward spot where you had to ask him after they won the American Conference title game you guys were a week before that Molly McGrath who was doing sideline this game asked him about his future at that time after the game but what was that like talking to him and then trying to figure out that storyline because I even I forgot watching back the game you know there would be highlights of the Nebraska game against Iowa you guys would be coming in there be getting highlights to you guys and then there was even the Missouri Arkansas game which that turned out to yep. be when Brett Billum I got fired on the field right after the game <laughs> and something that I, I I didn't realize until I rewatched the game and it's so ironic now looking back Dusty Dvorak at one of the after one of the Missouri highlights was praising then offensive coordinator Josh Heipel. Josh Heipel. And you right. and you guys, how what a great job he's doing in Missouri. Little did we know that would foreshadow down the road he would end up being the UCF head coach, which is kind of wild. Like the odds of that are just insane. Mm-hmm. But what was that like for you guys? How to handle the Scott Frost story and how you dealt with him? Uh, I think
2: Molly and I had experience with this. And Dusty, again, this was Dusty's first year. Uh, on ESPN. He had been on ESPNU the year prior. So this was only like year two or three of dusty calling games. Uh, Molly and I had had the, had had the chance to work the Mac championship game the year prior as the Friday night crew with Mac Brown. And we had PJ Fleck in yeah. Mac title game at Western Michigan when they were undefeated going into the Mac title game against Frank Solich's Ohio team, which, which had a good year that year, uh, eight or nine wins, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, we knew that PJ had a lot of rumors surrounding him. So we kind of talked it out. Molly and I, before the Mac title game in 2016, like, how do you want to say it? And, and we kind of worked together in terms of like some wording and Molly did such a good job of actually executing it. It's such a crazy spot for those reporters to be in when they have to ask these types of questions. You know, you hate asking it. No one likes asking these questions, whether it's pre or post game, Uh, especially post game. I don't like asking these, or I don't like, I feel uncomfortable having to ask them or being on a crew that has to ask them because it's tough. You know, these are tough spots to put these people in. Uh, it's not comfortable, but you have to do it. You're doing your due diligence. When the stories are out, you have to be on top of that, or at least be acknowledging of that. How much so is up to you personally and editorially as a crew. So Molly and I had some experience with how to deal with that. PJ, of course, to the Minnesota job not long after. Um, so when we went into this game, we had heard all the rumors. We knew Scott's parents were still in Lincoln. Like, we know the connectivity. We have all these highlights. Uh, we I think we showed some Scott Frost highlights, if I'm not mistaken, from his days playing at Nebraska. Obviously, a couple of option plays that we automatically made reference to with Scott Frost at Nebraska, you know, with, with how well McKenzie and, uh, you know, guys like Adrian Killens ran that option on a couple of plays. Uh, so naturally we make reference to these things. We have to discuss them intelligently and we try to be as unbiased as possible. So that means asking the questions. So I remember being in Scott's office and kind of like, how are you going to approach this? How do you approach this? And, and to his credit, he, I, I, I'm not going to go back and try to remember exactly what he said. That'd be uh, doing a disservice to him. But I do remember him giving a very good, Not just diplomatic, but nuanced answer about how he would go about the process of this. And I thought P.J. Fleck did a similar thing. He gave us a similar, like, nuanced answer about it. Then the game comes. P.J. Fleck did not answer the question. He completely skipped over it, which is fine. That's his prerogative. Our our due diligence means we have to ask, which Molly did. Molly asked again in this particular game, too. And, like, you're not going to get a ton out of there. Nor Again, it is his right. Now, it is also our right to dictate how we feel about how you handled it. And I hope coaches realize that Scott handled it very well. I thought Scott handled the whole process really well. I mean, going from maybe our game or the game right before our game until the Peach Bowl, I thought Scott handled everything very well without giving the boat away, you know, like he never really played, you know, really showed his hand, but he never lied about anything. I don't think he was being deceitful. I think he was trying to be as careful as possible. Now that might just be my bias because I like Scott as a human being. I don't think he's a jackass. I think there are plenty of coaches who are, I don't think Scott's one of them. So naturally the way I felt about it was going to dictate partially how I spoke about it, but I think we handled it fairly well. And I give Scott to this day, a lot of credit with how he handled that whole situation.
1: We'll be right back with more with Adam Amin after this.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com.
1: Now let's return to our interview with Adam Amin.
0: Speaking with Adam Amin, uh, of course, ESPN broadcaster. Uh, The game was kind of crazy, right? USF scores (laughs) right away on the first drive, blows a big play, go up. Unarguably the best touchdown of the game. You could argue that that Tyree McCants touchdown (laughs) was the best touchdown of the game. Tyree McCants with space. And there goes Tyree McCants. So the five and in. What a touchdown. It really was. I mean, that was an exciting play, breaking the play open, just setting the tone early. And then UCF would come back. They would respond. They would actually go up. Uh, two touchdowns, and you're thinking. I remember thinking of being there in the press box. Oh boy, this could get out of hand. Yeah, I thought, I thought 21-7. I was like, Oh man, this could get really ugly. Yeah, so you thought the same thing as you're as you're going through this in your mind. You're kind of like, because yeah, you know, not, not you're, you're you're obviously describing what's going on, so you don't want to think about what could happen. But at the same time, I mean, depending on how a game flows, will dictate in a lot of ways how the broadcast goes. Because you've done these, you know, that we've all done these games where they are blowouts, and now you got to think about other material to discuss. So yep. you you almost have to be prepared for anything. And in, and I thought at the end of the first quarter, wow, this could be a long game. Little did we know, South Florida to their credit and Quentin Flowers would come back and all of a sudden we got a game at halftime. Where when did you think what point did you say, "Hey, you know what? This is going to be an this is going to be an incredible game. This actually is not only going to maybe live up to the excitement but it might even surpass it." I think it was once we got the halftime.
2: When we got the halftime and we had a close game. We had a one I think it was a one point game, yep, yep, if I'm not. Yep, speaking, 21, right 20, there. Yep, 21, 20, yeah. Uh, as soon as we got back to 21-20, I thought, all right, South Florida's not going away. And Flowers looked sharp. Uh, he was in command of the offense. And I had no doubt about UCF's offense. We didn't and, and neither one. These were the top two offensive teams in the conference that year. They were two of the top twenty offense. You know, UCF was top five. USF was a top fifteen offense. Uh, in college football that year, so it's not like uh, we didn't expect points. Uh, but when it got to twenty-one-seven, we were worried. When it got back to twenty-one-twenty, uh, we were alleviated. You know, I, I felt I felt relieved. Uh, and I think that's what we knew. And and once it really started to trade the punches, that's when I mean we we were whole, we were white knuckling it. I think most of the second half, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like. Hey, who knows where we're going next? We didn't have much of a dick, like dictation for this, you know. We didn't have much of a concept for how this game was going the rest of the game was gonna go, in terms of the back and forth nature of it. We just thought it'd be like close. we like, all right, let's let's keep it within ten. I think we'll we'll stay within two possessions, and then we'll you know maybe one of these teams will start to pull away late in the fourth because that's all you're hoping for, right? Yeah. We're like all right, we got we got a halftime, we got a one point game. Let's keep it close, boys, and let's try to get uh, get to the finish line with a one possession game. Little did we know that that's what it would turn out
0: to be. Yeah, it was just a wild deal, and then USF had missed an extra point. There were some both teams went for it on fourth downs, didn't convert. I mean, from a I mean, you had everything here to analyze, which was and the tempo of the game was unbelievable too. Like uh, for both sides, because big plays were coming in chunks, and you know the irony is at the end of the half, it was Mike Hughes who got an interception to kind of preserve that league going into the locker room. Little did we know that Mike Hughes would make a bigger play down the road yep. uh, in yep. the game. What was your thoughts seeing McKenzie Milton? And obviously we know the story since, you know, he got had that horrific injury a year later in the same rivalry game in Tampa, uh, and he's still recovering and things like that. But what was your, t- your thoughts on Mackenzie Milton watching him in person at that time and even that UCF team as a whole? I mean, there's a bunch of guys on that team since that have moved on to the NFL.
2: Yeah, I mean to to see to first up we met McKinsey and I think we were one of the first crews to really uh kind of dive further in and I don't wanna I don't want to discredit the other crews, but we had the chance on an ABC broadcast to really show his story to a large, large, large chunk of the country. You know, like I, I think that that was the first time maybe UCF that year with Milton had really had that chance. So uh to kind of go back and go back to his mechanics and Dusty really wanted to break him down. And we got to hear the story about, uh, and please forgive me and correct me, Elo. Yeah. I want to say it was Mario Ver, Ver, Verduzco. Verduzco? Yeah. Verduzco, correct. All right. I want to make sure I had that correct. Mario Verduzco, we heard the entire story about how he really helped McKinsey develop those mechanics. And that's what stuck out to Dusty. And And, and our crew was really good about letting Dusty dictate how we talk about guys. Like I wanted to, it will empower him, and our producer wanted to empower him to talk about these guys, and we'll build the broadcast around it. So when Dusty looks at film, and he was a, he's a great film guy, he noticed mechanics right away. So he's like, all right, let's talk about that. How did you get there? And we had this great story about Mario, and we shared that at a good time during a review. We had time to break that down. Uh, we, got the, we really got to dive deep into some of what made McKenzie Milton great. And obviously, he played phenomenal football. He played a great game uh that night i i mean the griffin story is just you know we 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 really got to go back to the top and tell that story even going back to the days with with shaquille uh when when he was at ucf and the package deal story and uh talking i think uh, their you know i can't remember their mom's name i think terry is their father who created the you know the the armband for him with the prosthetic to be able to do weights and and do bench pressing. So we really got to break down those two big stories and maybe introduce a lot of people. I think Mike Hughes definitely earned himself uh, some money in that game. I I think, I think some GMs and scouts were like, Hey, this guy can do some stuff. Let's let's, let's take, you know, take another look at this guy. And I think Mike Hughes earned himself some real looks and maybe some dollars uh, with that great performance in that game too. So, and, and not to discredit anything, any of the UC, USF guys, they have, they have NFL guys, Marquez Valdez, Scantling, you know, yeah. has been a USF guy who made his way to the NFL. Like they're like, you know, great linebackers out of USF. You know, they've, they've got some, they had a lot of guys, they had a lot of dudes on that team. So, you know, the running back position has been very fruitful for them. Uh, Dearness Johnson had had some big moments in that game, obviously Flowers on the Bengals roster for a little while in, in the following season uh, in 18. So uh, the talent level, I, I think back on fondly. I go, man, we got to see some guys who, who still have bright futures ahead of them. Uh, so that's what was fun about, about the personnel of that game.
0: No, it really is. I mean, and that's kind of sometimes a cool thing when you go back and watch it. You forget that, oh, wait, that's right. That guy it was still on, was on that team. Like, you know, Gabe Davis, mm-hmm. who was going to be in this year's draft for UCF. He was in that yep. game as a freshman, called, you know, uh, and, and things like that. Traquan Smith is with the New Orleans Saints. You mentioned the both players. I mean, there's so many talent that I think that's kind of one of the fun things. And I think a lot of people are going to do that with the LSU Alabama game from this past year. When you look at the NFL guys, they're going to have years from now like, wow, that's 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 how people look at that Miami, Ohio State national championship game in
2: 03. That's how people look at that game with the insane amount of first-round talent. I went five guys or something out of the first round in that draft. There was like a handful of Hall of Famers, uh, football Hall of Famers, uh, or pro football Hall of Famers in that class uh, for both those teams. Insane.
0: Yeah, no, it was insane, uh, some of the talents there for sure. Uh, let's go back now to the late fourth quarter, which really the last five minutes is is, is an unbelievable. I mean, it's one of the many reasons why I think a lot of people voted as the game of the year in college football that yep. year. Uh, UCF was up 35-34. Milton hits Otis Anderson on this for 23 yards on that screen to score a touchdown with 2:21. At this point, I'm on the field. It's 42:34. Some people around me joked, "Well, maybe they scored too early." Well, it turned out they might have been right. <laughs> they were right because South, <laughs> uh, South Florida comes back and then Quentin Flowers uh, it, it 83 yards to Darnell Solomon uh, 42:40. I remember it, your call is incredible. You, 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 it was a wild. And then he hit the two point play. And then Mike Hughes gets the kickoff return for touch. Just take me through that last five minutes, which had to be a hectic. Uh, an, an amazing five minutes there, four and a half minutes, if you will, of that game.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the setup for Otis Anderson was. Uh, I that, that's something I get. We get a lot of tweets about that still to this day, and I just appreciate that so much because it means you did something right. Which, by the way, I go back and listen to the call because you know like you the UCF Twitter account will, will tweet it out once in a while and and the people who run that are you know super nice people and they're always so kind to me uh I, I think I said, we had a setup for Otis like we had it, it, it just happened to be the right time to tell the story about how like he was heavily sought after uh highly recruited yep. player but UCF had like the program that he wanted I think, I think it was a high level academic program that he was really set on on uh pursuing so UCF was his spot and then we said so we show a you know close up of him and say you know he's one of the key cogs now in Scott Frost's offense and the next play was bull you know a uh, blitz from the bulls it's a screen against the blitz the perfect play oh, and 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 I was so happy with that call but I I don't and I and people are so forgiving because you know, they, they get the part of it that they want, the excitement of the call. But I also said he may have sealed the deal for UCF. I, I'm not, I wasn't wrong, but I really wish I would have said something different because it, it just seems like you're calling it too early. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't exactly wrong because I hedged it, but if I'm hedging something, I'd rather make a more definitive call on it. I'd rather have just said, uh, you know, the screen against the blitz, the perfect play touchdown, Otis Anderson, And then just shut up. You know, I, I, instead of, I almost try to get too cute with it, you know, and I, I I don't, I'm not sad about it. I don't think it's bad. I'm, I'm thankful that we had such a great finish to be able to, you know, negate some of that, some of the, somewhat of uh, what I feel is my own mistakes. Big blitz from the Bulls. It's a screen against the Blitz. The perfect play. Otis Anderson may have sealed the deal for UCL. I appreciate UCF fans being so nice to me about it. Uh so we're we're all excited that's a gr- it was a good call. It was a good sequence for us as a crew. We told the story. We got the right guy on the next play with the touchdown. That's good TV, right? Yep. So now we're thinking All right, Quentin Flowers, you got a shot. Still plenty of time. 2 minutes to go at this point. And out of the gate, you know, they get that play to Darnell Solomon, busted coverage. Solomon goes and just like that now it's 100 seconds to go they're down by two you're thinking well no this is a real game man this, this is still there's still a long way to go great play call on the two-point conversion we get to say the johnson high game 42 apiece and the, the crowd is stunned at that point the back-to-back gut punches back to the fans clock moves inside of two minutes
1: flowers has a man
0: Looking, has a man, tie game! Dearness Johnson makes it
2: 42-0! USF ties the game, and then you get the moment. You get the moment. We're, and when we're doing our due diligence. Remember, special teams' plays happen in a vacuum. They just blow up. They happen just like that. So we almost kind of treat them as our bridge to get to the next thing. And the next thing at that point is McKinsey milton now we got to talk about McKenzie Milton getting set up for the next offensive series. Uh, or we go back and talk about Flowers and and put a bowl on this incredible school record performance he's put together. He had almost as much total offense himself as you, uh, UCF did. Like He was responsible rushing and passing for most of the offense that night, almost 600 yards worth, if not more. So like we were trying to hit all these different points, and I think we did a good job of it. And then we get to the kickoff, and we're like, all right, settle back in, 42 apiece, 141 left, and then the call. And it's like, Mike Hughes, you know, with a head of steam, and Mike Hughes, the kicker to beat, do you believe it? Mike Hughes. I don't know why it came to me. I, I, I know I'm probably somehow going to credit my buddy, Joe Davis on this. Cause I think he had a call on a Dodger play. And, and for those who don't know, Joe Davis does Fox uh, college football and major league baseball. And is also the voice of the Dodgers. Uh, and he is one of the best broadcasters in the game. And, and he's one of my close, close friends. And I remember a kind of, almost to the back of my mind, remembering a call that I had heard recently from him on like a Dodger game. And these were big Dodger games, you know, towards yeah. the end of the year. They, you know, and obviously they were, that was the year they went to the world series. So late 2017, like they're rolling it off and they're, they're crushing it. And I, I remember Joe's voice and maybe somewhere in the back of my head, I, I had thought of that, but I, the feeling of it was that, and that's why those words came to me first. And I almost feel bad saying it. Like, I feel like I ripped him off, which I didn't, but it just, its it just, cause it was in my head. And that's the thing that came. I was so shocked, not just by that play, but I think Eric, you're right. These last few minutes had just taken us every which way. And the shock of that moment, that's what I was feeling. I, I couldn't believe it. And I said, do you believe it? Mike Hughes, Uh, With that incredible play just capped off, you know, this maybe one of the best sequences in college football, maybe the best outside of, you know, like the Rose Bowl that year with Georgia and Oklahoma or the championship with Georgia and Alabama. That might have been the wildest sequence in college football.
0: In your defense, everybody was saying, can you believe it? Everybody – because the, the media at that point, a lot of them were downstairs. The, they were in the press box. Oh, sure, sure, sure. sure. And everybody yeah, – yeah. I've never seen, being down on the field, the, the chaos – that went after that Mike Hughes touchdown and the emotion. <laughs> yeah. And everybody was like caught up in it. You're caught up in it. They're like, they're, they're jumping, you know, like, what? Can you believe what we just seen here? Um, I've mm-hmm. never seen that place. And I've been going to games there since it opened at 07 when that stadium opened. I've never seen that place as bonkers as those last few minutes and that play. I mean, it was unbelievable. And what's crazy is the game wasn't over. South Florida actually <laughs> drove. They were driving until, you know, uh, Mitch Wilcox, the poor young man who caught the pass from Flowers, fumbled the ball. Richie Grant made a heck of a play in that play, forced a fumble, and Shaquan Shaquan Burkett recovered it at uh, at the UCF 46-yard line. Otherwise, we could still be playing if that would have happened. Yeah, absolutely. Flowers to the sticks for the first down.
2: Wilcox lost the football. UCF has it with 39 seconds to go. No doubt, and and I, I, I just a gut punch of that moment, as as big of a moment as it was for UCF, and obviously the crowd was going nuts, but we stuck with Wilcox in terms of yeah. what we talked about, and I remember the what I said going to uh, not going to break, uh, going to the replay because we milked the, the the fans. The fans' reaction was awesome. Obviously, the UCF bench was going nuts. Uh, they knew that was it. They'd sealed it. But we went back to the shot of Wilcox. His teammates are hugging him, arm around him. He's on his knees for a little longer. Like, I, you just, your gut, like, was wrenching watching that kid. And all I could think was was at that moment, because the, the huge moment happened. We had UCF taking the lead. So I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I think I was giving you the story and the, and that, and, and the right picture. You know, our, our director, Anthony DeMarco, on that show is just so good. And he, he had so many great shots with that sky cam all night too. But like that shot of Wilcox just was gut wrenching. And I felt for the kid. And I just thought like your heart, you, you know, your heart, you got to be heartbroken for that kid right now. And then you turn your, you pivot. And it's like, and here's UCF. And you got this final minute, you know, or so to kind of wax poetic about the incredible accomplishment. And then the graphic comes up at the end, you know, I, I think they were the, second team all time to go from winless to undefeated in the regular season two years later. Uh, I want to say it was like Minnesota in like the sixties or something was the other team to do it at that point. So UCF has this incredible historic accomplishment and we just, I thought we did a good job of putting a bow on it. And it's a division title and it's a chance at Memphis next week. It'll be, you know, It'll be a high-scoring affair. So we got to—I think we put the right touches uh, on the whole thing at the end, and I was really proud walking out that night. You know, we uh, we went out to to a bar over by our hotel, a sports bar, to watch uh, you know the last game of the night and to you know have some dinner. And I was just really proud of how everybody went about their business uh, over the course of what ended up being you know one of the more memorable nights of my career and certainly one of the more memorable and uh, I think enjoyable broadcasts that I've ever been a part of.
0: Where does that rank? I mean, you've done so many games, it's hard to rank them, obviously, but that was, and we've talked talked about it though, you got, you and the crew and everybody got a lot of praise on social media, which as you know, is not the easiest thing to get, uh, you know, uh, from that standpoint. Uh, but I remember Richard Deitch, who obviously covers this very closely, was at Sports Illustrated at the time. He's now at The Athletic. He praised you and the work you did for that game. I mean, everybody, which is just about everybody that watched that game enjoyed what they were watching, not just because it was a great game, but the broadcast and the presentation that had not that you seek that, but I, I have to believe. That's one of those that you kind of feel that's right up there, right? One of your favorites. And you had to, you know, I don't know if you were aware of that, what was going on of all the praise that was going on during the game. Obviously, you're not. You're focused on the game. But I'm sure you got about it afterwards. You know, a little bit during the game, though, too. Because when that game started
2: to get hot, uh, it was at a great time. That's why that 3.30 – I've done that 3.30 Black Friday slot on ABC uh, three times. And I love that time slot. It's just like, I don't know what it is. You don't have to put the biggest game there. But the audience just shows up for that because it's the right time. I think you get to 3.30 Eastern. Uh 2015, I did Nebraska-Iowa. Iowa's was undefeated 11-0, trying to get to 12-0 and at that point. Uh, Nebraska, if they win, they go to a bowl game. Uh, 2017 was the Warren I for 2018. I did the Virginia tech, Virginia game. The first game in the Commonwealth cups history that ever went to overtime Unreal game. Like, and the audiences for that game, I think maybe just because you get to six o'clock Eastern people are probably done shopping for the day. They probably ate, you know, a lot of leftovers when they got home about four or five o'clock. And I think six o'clock, everybody's starting to settle in. And you get to 7 o'clock, and you're getting to, you know, the end of these games, six thirty, seven 7 o'clock. And when that game starts to get hot, probably even earlier than that, but like you said, Elo, it was, it was great so, for so long in that game. You know, you get to maybe 5.30. I'm, I'm starting to get some texts. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I do my best not to check Twitter too often, but sometimes I like to check it because, you know, you'll get some instant feedback or, you know, you learn something. Or, you know, I also like to look at the beat writers. I keep lists of, uh, you know, beat writers and stat guys to follow during games for teams. I'm doing that week, so, you know, you can keep up to date with some stories. So, you know, I'm looking at Twitter, and there's a lot of buzz. My phone's starting to blow up because people are going, dude, this game. Sean McDonough texted me during that game, and I, I was so proud to feel like if you get Sean, Sean doesn't throw bouquets. And Sean's a very helpful and complimentary and kind person but he doesn't throw bouquets for the sake of throwing them. If he says something positive, it's, it's, he means it. And to get, you know, a text from him during the game, to have the guys in studio, you know, Kevin DeGondi was in studio during that game. One of my close friends in this business. And, you know, he and I are texting back and forth during the game and Dusty's buddies are texting him guys who we played with, with the bears are tuning in to watch this game. So, like I think it started to get hot and I was aware that it was one of those games, but it, in the moment, you never really, you try not to let that affect you, which is hard, but you try not to let it affect you. You just do the job. You get you refocus your attention to the priority and the priority is what's happening in front of you. And that helps to, to kind of stay in the moment. And I think looking back, Elo, it, it, it's hard to rank for sure, but And and, and this is not something I knew at the time. You never understand these things in the moment. You need time away from them and time to pass to realize what they actually mean in context. And for me, that was like a turning point. You know, that was one of the turning points of my career that night. You know, to have that game with that sequence on that stage with those stakes, that was a turning point for me as a broadcaster. To know I could handle the big moments a little bit better than I had in years past, and sure enough, that was the start of the year where we have that game. We get the Arike sequence uh, at the Final Four that year, yeah. And right. then I, and, and then you, and then you get the LeBron buzzer beater in the NBA playoffs on radio, and all these calls go viral, and all these moments go viral, and it's like, all right, this is a, This was a that that UCF game was a little bit of a turning point for me to feel like I've belonged a little bit. I think, I, I, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but that's kind of what it feels like. Like you finally feel like, Hey, did I, am I allowed in the club yet? Like, am I, <laughs> like, am I allowed to, like, am I allowed to hang out with you guys yet? I, I feel like the dork who just got invited to the party by accident. And now finally, you know, you sit down at the piano and you play a song and everybody goes, Hey, I like this guy. That's what it felt like. And I, 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 in that sense, I can look back at it and feel like it's one of the most important nights of my career. And like I said, it's certainly one of the most memorable and enjoyable, but it was truly important for me as a broadcaster to feel confident in your abilities. And by the way, I don't think that goes unnoticed by people like you. I don't think that goes unnoticed by fans. And I don't think that goes unnoticed by people who make decisions. And that's the, that's not the fun part of this job to think about because that's the part of the job that'll make you crazy is the, how am I doing? Am I good? Pat me on the head, please. But it is nice to feel like you did the job well and that people that care believe that you did a, a good job that night and you did that game justice. That's a good feeling.
0: I I agree. And yeah, there's something about that, right? When you call a college football game, it's just different than other sports. It just, it gets you a different yep. plateau. Like, you know, I like it's funny. Like, I've done all these different sports, and yet this past year I got to fill in, uh, call in a UCF men's basketball game on the radio because our radio voice, Mark Daniels, was doing football that same day against Tulane. And yep. the feedback getting from men's basketball, you just it was almost like, yeah, you, you know, that it was kind of weird. Like, it was just a regular season college back, but it's a big deal. There are certain games, you're right, where even though you've done great work prior to that, that's a game where everybody kind of catches on. And now at that point, it's like, Oh, sweet, Adam Amin's calling the game or so-and-so. Now they're looking forward to it because they know you're – they remember that great game and they're like, "Wow, I can't wait. And you're right, that kind of started – I forgot that the Final Four, that was the crazy Final Four year where you had the Notre Dame-UConn game, the semifinal, they went overtime, and then the Notre Dame-Mississippi State title game, uh, which was an incredible Final Four. It's arguably one of the best women's Final Fours ever. And obviously there's still the visual – they, they had that video camera set up on you guys yeah. as you're calling yeah. it, which had to be unique now as you see that. For sure. And, and it, it cemented those moments for me. And here's the
2: other thing too, Eric, and, and you know this. Uh, I'm sure most people do it. And I'm sure some people like, you know, I, I sometimes feel like I talk about this too much, but it's an important thing to me. Like that, you know, that, that month was brutal. You know that month my dad died yeah. it was it was probably at that point what I would consider to be the worst moment of my life I still do you know and which yeah it's I, I think if there's a positive in being able to pinpoint that and knowing that hey that is that it it's it's never been worse than that anything that you deal with now it, it'll never be worse than the feeling you had when you found that out so that month sucked um it was not a fun month, and then when we started to get into this you know, flow of the final four. This was my first one. uh, I was really like, hey, I think this could be, I I I think this could be the night where I come back. You know, it feels like you're yourself again. And when we had that Arike moment in the semis, I thought, wow, I needed that. I needed needed that to feel uh, kind of uh, myself again. You know, like, hey, we had this fun moment. I got to enjoy it with everything I had, with people that I care about that I love working with and get having, and and being able to see all of that, you know, I, I, knowing those feelings and then being able to go back and see that video from the semifinals of that, you know, and like that, I remember exactly how I felt at each millisecond of that video and even like collapsing on, you know, Kara's shoulder and her giving me the fist pound and all that. And that in that semifinal, I was just like, Man, thank you. And I figured, hey, maybe that you know, like in 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 your spiritual spirituality or whatever, like you think, hey, maybe dad gave that to you. Maybe that was a gift. You know, and I, I that that gave me some comfort and it felt like my I felt like myself again. And then to get it again two nights later and I'm in my office right now and I have this collage of photos on my wall of just important ones uh from from you know, games and stuff. And I have, you know, me and Doris Burke, my first NBA game, the Iron Bowl, you know, from 2013, my view from the booth, Wrigley Field, uh, my first NBA playoff game with Steph Curry uh, in an interview, you know, the picture of me and Steph and PJ Carlismo. And then in the middle of it is me, Kara, and Rebecca after Enrique hits the shot, after I make the call, and after we all lay out, and, you know, I backed away from the table just because of relief. You know, I hit the call and I got out of the way and I was like, oh, thank God. Now I can shut up for a while. I don't have to say anything. I can gather my thoughts. But, Kara gave me the, the fist bump and I just, I just, I just hugged her and reached out for Rebecca and that moment when I reach out for Rebecca and I'm hugging Kara is the middle of that photo collage. And, I think back to that moment because I just remember thinking these two did so much along with Holly Rowe. These two people did so much to carry me through the month and after that when I let let them go I look up and on the video and that's why like like you said you can kind of relive this over and over and over again I I instinctually looked up and I said I love you my dad and I just thought I, I look back on that now and I go this was like one of the seminal moments of my life. And it was the thing that kind of got me feeling normal again. And it made me feel like, uh, that that first one kind of made me feel normal. And the, the championship one, the second one, that kind of helped me turn the corner, you know? And I know that that might sound a little weird. And, and, and then sometimes I worry that the job, you know, had such an impact on me personally, but in, in my head, I just kind of look at that moment and I can relive it watching that video that you talked about, man. I can relive it over and over again. And I know exactly how I felt and I can pinpoint that now and say that was a turning point. Not only that, you know, that UCF game was a turning point in my career. The final four was a major boost for my career, but it was also a turning point, a turning point moment in my life. And that, that video and seeing that and looking back at that means a lot. And I think it's that you're, you're one of the first people I've told that to uh, in an interview before. Uh, it's uh I, I, I can very much feel all of that. Looking back on it now, no. But thanks, I, and thanks for the question, man. I, I, I appreciate you asking that, and I'm sorry for the rambling answer, but it's just uh, that was it. It, mean, it does mean a lot. And I appreciate you asking that.
0: No, no, I appreciate you. Uh, you, know, you know, sharing that because uh, you're right. I remember you obviously when that happened because obviously you were scheduled to do the American Men's Basketball Championship, uh, and obviously that's right in Orlando. the Orlando, that's right. And I remember I was oh man, I'm gonna get to see you hang out with Adam, but. Uh, then that unfortunately happened. I remember, you know, and I, but I, I can relate to that because I've had family issues. You know, a couple of years ago, my mom was in very bad health, um, and mm-hmm. it's tough. Uh, and I, you know, it was kind of, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I was meanwhile broadcasting a UCF sporting event. And in a weird way, that was, that helped me get through it. Uh, thankfully, yeah. You know, totally. she turned out, you know, and she turned out, you know, thankfully on the positive end. But in a lot of ways, I, I kind of feel like that. Final Four, as maybe as difficult as it was to get back to broadcasting, maybe helped you as you mentioned in those games and being with people you care about. Because I know you you, you really enjoyed working with, still do with Rebecca Lobo, obviously as you mentioned, and Holly Rose the sideline there, and then, of course uh, you know uh, you know Lawson there who's now with the Celtics. But that also probably helped as well as being around people you cared about and they were there for you and maybe helped you, uh, maybe you know uh, get through that.
2: Oh no doubt, you know I I I, I tell the story about Holly uh, where, you know, the day after I, uh, my dad passed, uh, no, I hadn't really told many people about it, but she, she, be, she was one of the first people to find out. And I guess that's just funny being the reporter that she is. Maybe that's why she was so good at finding out, but she found out. And there was a, uh, a $100 gift certificate to my favorite taco place in Chicago, sitting in my email, like when I woke up the next day. And that's the type of person Holly is, you know, like that, that's, uh, that's a story that I think encompasses her as well as anybody just so thoughtful. Uh, Rebecca is, has become one of my close friends and one of the best people, you know, un- unbelievable broad uh, player, hall of fame player, hall of fame, broadcaster, hall of fame, mom, hall of fame, wife, uh hall of fame person. And Kara is the best basketball mind I've ever met. And, I have never met anybody who thinks about the game the way she does. I think she has one of the most, she's one of the smartest people I've ever met, period. Forget about basketball, just period. Uh, and is just cool and understanding and, and empathetic. And just, these are great human beings. Uh, and that doesn't even, that's not even talking about like the crew, you know, like I had a great producer, great director, uh, keeping everybody together. Like that, that's important in this job. So I, I try to talk about those people as much as possible because they are so important to what we do. But that you know, like just I felt invested in these people because they felt invested in me, and that I think that goes a long way uh, in like terms of broadcast chemistry and like what you guys watch for and what what, what you guys enjoy. You want to enjoy who you're listening to, right? You want to you want to feel like the people you're investing two and a half to four hours on your couch with while you're watching a game. You want to like these people. And for you to like them means that they need to like each other. And I think that's how it's played out with, with a lot of the crews that I've been lucky to be on.
0: Appreciate what you do, man. We miss your voice. We hope to hear your voice soon. (laughs) Play by play. But in the meantime, I'm glad you're doing okay, my friend. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I know it's a unique times there, man. And thanks for sharing some of those stories. And I think a lot of people learned a lot today. And I think a lot of bro- young broadcasters as well, not just fans, but broadcasters. But thanks for everything you've done. You've worked hard, man. You're one of the best. And uh, uh, I'm so hopefully we'll uh, hear your voice down the road doing another sporting event real soon.
2: Looking forward to that day, man. Looking forward to seeing you uh, down the line in person, sharing a hug and sharing some stories and sharing a laugh again, man. That'll be a good day.
0: Same here, brother. All right. Thanks uh, to Adam Amin again for an in-depth interview, which uh, was pretty awesome to uh, hear his thoughts and and what's going, what was going through his mind during that South Florida UCF game uh, deal. By the way, we have actually more. If you want to hear more about Adam Amin, especially those of you that are a softball audience, uh, on In The Circle SB, we have an interview with Adam mean, where he goes into detail about softball broadcast and his partner Amanda Scarborough. You can follow that on the same platforms you listen to this podcast and, of course, on In The Circle SB for all the details there on fastpitchnews.com. But, uh, Jeffrey, for this interview, the thing that struck – it was amazing to me, just kind of his mind going through each situation in that fourth quarter, talking about dealing with Scott Frost, Jeff during that week and going into the game enough and how he thought Scott handled it very well with them and, and the whole pro- unique circumstances about his future. Um, I thought it was some great in-depth perspective that we just don't you know you're not going to get many anywhere else but kind of give you an inside idea of what broadcasters are thinking about in the booth when a game like this is developing.
1: You know I always thought that it's what people don't understand about when you're in the booth and I've done it for baseball and, and for a couple of other sports, not on the level that Adam has, neither of us have, but, um, but you know, w- one thing that we realize when preparing for, for all, uh, for, for these games is, you know, we are, you know, what you see is just, is literally the tip of the iceberg. All that you, you know, all the information that we have, and obviously we have to, you know, uh, We have to. um, The game itself takes up the ninety-five percent of what we're actually talking about, as it should, obviously. But that preparation provides the context for what we're doing, and those stories that you and it's it's a shame that you know in the course of a of a game, especially a game like this one, where there's so much action going on, um, you don't have the opportunity to talk all that much about uh about some of the things that you that you see and you hear behind the scenes um and you know of course you see and you hear things behind the scenes that are not for public consumption (laughs) in in the course of the game and i think that's that's part of what's so fascinating about it and to hear him talk about that i i hope that you know we as ucf fans and ucf fans i will say they are hard on uh announcers And, and i know this from my own experience too like you know it you know they're they're a tough crowd to please um you know, but uh, I hope that fans gain an appreciation for not just Adam and the work that he does, but what all the announcers do in preparation for UCF and trying to put UCF in a national context. Of course, you're not going to get everything that you want that you want to hear, but that but that's the the primary issue that everyone's talking about is what what is UCF in the national context? Uh, and he is able to and he was able to put it together in that game. No, he did, and it was a fantastic broadcast, and I think you
0: remember this, and I know you guys touched on it on the rewatch that you'll, you'll, you'll talk about in a little bit, but I remember watching the game when it, you know, you're at home watching the broadcast, uh, whereas me and Murph were in the, in the booth, so we obviously, yes, we're following it on the computer to some extent on the social media, but, and, and we talked about it in the interview, the feedback on the broadcast was positive, it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Richard Deitch, who covers the media industry praised the broadcast and fans more importantly uh, praised it. Even to this day, they've praised that broadcast. And you know this—that's not easy to do in social media to get any approval that you know positive. Usually, it's the most uh, mixed or negative. Oh, you're, you know, you don't like our team. Why do you, you hate team. our
1: team? You know, well, I, I right. used to I used to joke that if I get messages from somebody saying from from fans from both teams saying, "Why do you hate my team so much?" I've done my job, <laughs> right. But this was a case, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I remember you were watching the
0: game at home, so you probably were following a lot closer. The feedback afterwards was incredible, and I remember that because when I got home from the game, all the feedback was was still going, you know, positive towards him. And I know, as you mentioned, that was a turning point in his career. Uh, he felt that was a game that showed a lot of uh, maybe people that, you know, were his bosses or whoever, that he can handle a big situation, a big moment, a big game uh, like that one was. Um, and, and so for him, that's, you know, one of the most signature moments there, he felt a turning point and that kind of started a run for him as he talked about in the interview, you know, he, you know, did the women's final four and he did the LeBron and the NBA playoffs. And, you know, obviously he talked about in depth, there a very personal thing with his dad passing you know, in March of 2018, but that football game is a signature moment for him because I think it put him, don't you think, in a different galaxy? I mean, a lot of us that follow the, this closely knew he was great, but I think it, that put him in a different galaxy, a different level with a lot of people that now it's like, oh, Adam Amin's doing this game. That's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's an ultimate praise to him. Uh, But that's what I remember. Do you, do you agree with that? Because you were following that closely. Uh, I don't remember a UCF game and you mentioned it. I mean, the positive feedback from them and USF and just football fans in general for that game uh, was pretty incredible and well deserved
1: it's one of those magic moments in sports where the event outstripped the hype and and yeah. what we actually saw because there was a lot of hype around here coming you know around here coming into that game but um it so exceeded the hype and I and, and I will say that now Adam, if you're listening, I apologize for this because, uh, because it's uh, you know, I I hate to put this kind of uh, you know, put this out there, but but it's but it's true. It's it's the elephant in the room. So ESPN is looking for possibly a new uh, Monday Night Football play by play guy, and I think you know where I'm going with this. Um, you know, Adam's name has been dropped in in connection with quite possibly being that guy um and to tell you the truth i don't know you know i don't know if you i don't know if you agree with me on this but eric but perhaps his name doesn't start getting dropped into that conversation of big game announcers with big game experience uh, without that game you know his name doesn't get put in connection with MNF if, if if that's not the case and that's that's still in the broadcasting industry the holy grail i mean that's one of the you know that's one of them yeah, yeah. so um you know I, so we shall remain adam mean stands uh from yeah, here until from here until the cows come home and if you don't like it too bad go listen to somebody else but uh i'm wow. uh, we're really thankful i'm sad i couldn't get in on the conversation with you with him i know i know that he's even with sports on hiatus, you know, he's still super busy trying to get, um,
0: yeah, you a, tr- doing a and... bunch of other interview stuff. Yeah. And,
1: and it and was for interesting him to take this much time for us. You know, I'm really yeah. appreciative. I hope we can have him on again and I can listen in on it because, um, because it's, uh, what, what a joy to talk to.
0: No question. I agree. Uh, hopefully we can get him back down the road, but you know, he's done other interviews and he, and I don't think he didn't mention it in this interview, but, that USF game, he feels it's right there. He, he, the two best – probably his two top football games he's called. He's called the Auburn-Alabama game on the radio in 2013. Remember the kick six? Yep. Uh, that yeah, that he one – was the he radio call for that answer. one. That's right, yeah. And then I think this one with the Mike Hughes one uh, are probably his top two football games he's called uh, yeah. in his career to this point.
1: Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, and no, you know, nobody hears the national radio call of that kick six game. They only hear the Auburn call. Uh, or the or the TV call with uh, with um, Vern Lundquist on CBS, um, and that's unfortunate. But everyone saw. Yeah, the story.
0: Auburn the Auburn Alabama game. He did it on the radio side right. uh, for a national radio at that time. But you know, it's funny though. Even if you listen in the interview here. He's so, like, he still critiques himself very harshly, right? Like, he's talking about the Otis Anderson thing and how he regrets saying that that may have clinched it. Like, little things like that. And I'm like, that's not that big of a <laughs> we're, deal. But we're all thinking the same thing, man.
1: It's okay. We're all thinking the same thing. Right. So, uh, so, that
0: was a, phen- a phenomenal uh, game and obviously a great call by him. And I think UCF fans still, obviously, for positive I think UCF. Don't you agree? Every time he does either a UCF basketball game, he's done women's basketball, he's things like that. That meant, that's kind of the first thing that pops into I think a lot of UCF fans' mind is that 2017 South yeah. Florida game because of his calls of that
1: game and and at his at, uh, you know that tremendous broadcast of that tremendous game. Oh, Adams here should be a good one tonight. That's right. So, um, real quick, if you want to uh, re-watch our rewatch of the 2017 War on I four. Um, I have a link in the description of this podcast um, to that uh, to that UCF Rewind video. Um, it's myself, Brian Murphy, uh, Andrew Glukov, um, Anthony Lenahan, and Jeremy Brenner talking about that game uh, in uh, in depth. Uh, if you want to check it out, uh, it's on our YouTube channel, and it's also in the and a link to it to that story is in the description. Um, in this, uh, in in, in uh, on this podcast, uh, also NFL draft and undrafted free agency news. Follow us for it. Black and gold banner We're also looking ahead to the 2021 draft uh, this week, which uh, UCF players. Uh, might have a shot and like, what do they have to do in this upcoming year in order to have a shot at the 2021 draft? Yes. We're already looking forward to that. It's the draft. Everyone always look, everyone's always way too soon on the draft. So lots of stuff coming up, even though there's no live sports going on. um, We will definitely get the opportunity to, um, to, uh, to wet your appetite uh, as well here, Eric Lopez. Yeah. And we got some upcoming UCF rewind episodes
0: down the road. We're going to have a UCF Memphis game from 2017. The American Conference
1: Championship game. Working on the guest for I've, that. I've, I've, I was going to say, make sure you stay stay in live. We may 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 have a very special guest. That's right. We're going to
0: do the Peach Bowl, which you, me, and Murph will be talking about that game from different perspectives because you were in the stands for that game at the Peach Bowl. Murph was in the press box. I was watching back at home. So we'll get the Peach Bowl and also coming up, the we're going to. I got working on a project. The twenty fifteen. Five-year anniversary of UCF softball season. Five-year anniversary. We're going to have both Shelby Turnier and Mackenzie Autis on the podcast at the same time to reflect. On the five-year anniversary. That'll come out on the day of the anniversary, May 9th. Look for that on May 9th. That's the anniversary of the Tulsa win for the championship. You were at that game. I was
1: at that Uh, game. In fact, I'm very happy to say that was my son Connor's very first UCF uh, sporting event. Yeah, you and I will have to— you and I will have to share some stories about that
0: on that episode uh, leading into Mackenzie and Shelby's interview there. That'll be fun. And then we're also working on the 2005, a team you know very well, the 2005 UCF Softball Championship 15-year anniversary. We're working on the guests for that. So we got some special rewind episodes, football, some softball, and then other sports as time goes on.
1: All right. So it should be fun. So stick around with us here at Black and Gold Bannerhead as we uh, continue to roll through here. You know, Don't socially distance from us online. Uh, because we got a lot of stuff coming for you. For Eric Lopez, uh, by the way, also special. Uh, one last thing I want to do: special thanks again to Adam Amin. Um, you can uh, follow him on Twitter at uh, Adam A D A M Amin A M I N. Uh, no underscores, none of that. It's just A D A M M A M I N on Twitter. He's very active on Twitter. Sometimes to a fault, as he will admit, but. <laughs> Um, make sure you make sure you follow him. Special thanks to Adam, and a special thanks to you, Eric Lopez. For Eric, I'm Jeff. Saying thanks for listening. This has been the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast, UCF Rewind Edition.